How many times does the revolution have to fail before it succeeds? And is our world the crappy sort of world where utopian plans always fall into the wrong hands? Do the good guys die and do the bad guys, by kind of virtue of not being dead, take their place and then go on to run the world? Could I make it any more obvious how relevant these questions are to China? Here to rein me in and keep the conversation smart and subtle and not quite so um, meat-fisted? No, not meat-fisted. Ham-fisted. <laughs> Here to keep the conversation uh, not ham-fisted is translator Kanan Morse. I'm going to be interviewing him about his translation of Peach Blossom Paradise, which is the first book in Gefei's Jiangnan trilogy. Gefei we've covered on the show before. Um, it was his Hsenyaochun flock of brown birds. Um, Eric Abrahamson was the guest and Kanan, I think, is Eric's pal, so that's worked out nicely. But before all of that, we're going to go do the Trutrufic news, the translated Chinese fiction news. All the news items today are basically just lifted off of uh, Paper Republic's Twitter. Uh, although one of the three items I already knew about, um, but it also happened to be on their Twitter. So that one is, it's debatable where I got that one from. But in any case, um, I just kind of plucked these from a handy uh, place because I didn't have any news sourced by myself, I suppose, um, which would lead me to say if you ever have some news relating to Chinese lit, translated Chinese lit that you'd like me to kind of amplify on the show here in this section, then yeah, just let me know. Uh, I'd, I'd love to and you, you are literally saving me some work or a chore or whatever. So um, as long as it's on topic, I'm really happy to cover it. So please just get in touch via social media. Um, I'll just plug social media now actually, since uh, you know, since it seems like the right time. So uh, Instagram's a good place to contact me, at uh, trchfic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. Uh, that's the podcast Instagram. My own personal Twitter is the one I use for the show too. It's at Angus Likes Words. Uh, those are the best ways, really. The show does have a Facebook. Oh, Discord is actually really good too. Um, you'll find a Discord invite link in the show notes and on the podcast website. Right, let's actually get on and do the news now. So our first item... This is a little uh, blog post. It's called There and Back Again, Tracking Down Transliterations in Stories of the Sahara. So it's Mike Fu, who was on the show, talking about Stories of the Sahara, which is his translation of the wonderful Sanmao and her dispatches from Northwest Africa. So he's talking about, I think we covered this on the podcast actually, but so there were words that uh, Sanmao had transliterated in Chinese. So something from the local... Uh, I think Arabic was one of the local languages, uh, but the Bedouin people there, um, she would take their words, write them out in Chinese characters, and Mike had to do a considerable amount of research tracing these words back to their source and then translating them into English. So pretty pretty fun little blog for you guys to check out. That'll be linked in the show notes. Uh, the next uh, item of news is also just on the Paper Republic website, like Mike's article. It's the 2020 roll call of published translations from Chinese, and it's broken down into fiction, uh, poetry. Is there non-fiction? Let me click this link and see. Oh yes, as well as... Um, so yeah, I'll go through the sections actually. So it uh, lists the various prizes, which were won by translated Chinese fiction and, and their authors. Uh, there's a breakdown of uh, gender balance, so whether it's men or women winning the prizes and getting published. There's links to some star reviews. Then there's a list of general fiction and classic fiction. So you could say stuff by living writers, 
stuff by uh, dead writers, if we're being very broad. There's a special section for science fiction and fantasy. Um, yep, that's cool to see. Then we have a non-fiction section. Uh, then we have poetry. Then we have children's books. Oh, great. Okay, yeah, so a lot of good stuff there. Excellent. Yes. Now, our next news item, it is something I uh, tweeted, but it's worth a slot in the news too. It's a, a book that another former show guest, Deathblade, Jeremy, by um, the Wuxia web fiction, mostly, translator has brought out. Um, it's his little guide to understanding Chinese fantasy genres. So these are Wuxia, Xianxia, and Xuan, Xuan Huan. Don't know if I said that uh, very well. Xuan isn't a, a opinion sound I run into very often now that I think about it. But yeah, um... So if you're wondering what those are, you can listen to my episode with him or some of the other Wuxia season episodes I did, or you can buy his book. I believe it's, on one hand, if you want to get a flavour of what it's like, you can go watch his YouTube videos explaining these different genres, but he's uh, said that there is like content there, a refined, edited, you know, coherent, boiled uh, down version of them, but he's added other uh, extrapolations and thoughts too. So, I mean, he really knows his stuff. So if you're looking for an intro, I'm guessing a fairly uh, concise intro to these genres, although I, I don't know, I don't know how long it is, uh, this would be a good place to go looking. And he's a, he's a, he's a nice chap. So yeah, your support would, would be going to a good cause is maybe the wrong word, but a, a, a good guy. A good guy who really cares about what he's doing. So yeah, let, speaking of good guys who uh, care about what they're doing, <laughs> let's get on to the interview, because uh, I think Kanan Morse fits that description, and I think the offer for this episode, Gofei, does too. So yeah, without further ado, interview time. Right, so we have on the show Kanan Morse. Oh, I always do this. Is that a correct pronunciation of your name? That is the correct pronunciation, okay. yes. I was pretty sure, but I wanted to check. You just beat out every Starbucks barista ever. <laughs> do they do they say like Canaan or something? Yo, I get all kinds. I get Canaan, Canaan, Canon. Um, I have a lot of people who say, "Oh, Canaan, like Cain and Abel," and I'm like, "No, that's three words." <laughs> <laughs> Cain and Abel. There might be a Mister Abel out there somewhere called Canaan. That would be funny. Anyway, starting again. Um, we've got on the show Kanan Morse. Nice to uh, nice to have you on, Kanan. I don't know if it's too early to say Merry Christmas, but in any case, uh, Merry Christmas. How's it going, and what have you been up to lately? Well, Merry Christmas to you too, Angus. Um, I uh, have been doing as much as I can to sort of keep up with the general pace of life during the COVID pandemic over here in the northeastern U.S. Um, I was originally supposed to be in China right now as a Fulbright scholar in Beijing doing dissertation research, but first the COVID pandemic and then the government cancellation of the Fulbright China program, which was incredibly regrettable, uh, have forced me here to stay here. Um, and I am teaching a survey course in classical Chinese literature at Boston University. I'm actually in the middle of grading final exams today and uh, preparing to spend a semester in Taiwan instead. Oh, well, there you go. Are you off to Taipei or is it a different part of Taiwan? No, I will be in Taipei, um, uh, affiliated with the Academia Seneca, the Zhongyan Yuan. Um, mm. And I've changed my proposal up significantly because my research, in terms of fieldwork at least, deals specifically with a form of popular cultural performance that's localized in Beijing. Um, um, I research Pingshu, 
uh, you know, long form storytelling, Shen Tianfang right. style, Ping Shu, uh, and its connection to ancient literature. But in Taiwan, I'll be looking at a bunch of old texts that they have down there in their libraries um, and trying to write a dissertation chapter and probably definitely continuing to translate and write. Cool. I haven't, or if I have heard of the full Fulbright Scholar Program before, it's in a bunch of other things filed away in my head. But I do know over the last few years, a few different things like that, things that, like exchange programs between uh, the States and China, and maybe the China and uh, the China, maybe China and other countries have been kind of like the drawbridges pulled up. And it's not, it's not all been down to the pandemic, right? It's been down to geopolitics. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And um, our idiot president, Donald Trump, had no beneficial effect on that whatsoever. No. Um, they, his attempt to do whatever it is he's trying to do has broken a lot of really productive cultural ties that American scholars and researchers of all kinds and teachers have had with the outside world, including and most particularly China. Mm-hmm. And there are there are a number of I mean, I was the beneficiary of the golden age of Chinese education back as a college student. Um, I went to two different immersion programs in Beijing, uh, once as a junior, once as a sophomore and once uh, as a postgrad. And they were amazing. And neither of those programs exist anymore. It's a shame. It makes you wonder mm-hmm. what the future holds. But I guess who knows, because uh, mm. <laughs> the number of um, curveballs history keeps throwing at us. Um, seems to be unlimited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you've, you've, you've told us a wee bit about yourself and your journey as a translator, or, or at least your education in uh, uh, Chinese language and other things Chinese. Is there mm. anything else you can tell us, I guess, given that we're the, the translated Chinese fiction show, about your journey uh, translating like stories, Chinese fiction that people can buy yeah. you know, off Amazon or whatever? Well, um, most of the things that I have translated are not still are not still available for sale. Mm. Um, I I began uh, in college after I came back from China. I wanted to do a a senior thesis in East Asian studies um, and I searched around for uh, good stories by contemporary Chinese authors. And I ended up with a novella by a very well-known contemporary author named Wang Shuo. Oh, Um, yeah. Uh, who you have heard of, a uh, oh, number yes. of people have heard of. Yeah, so he had a very, very, probably his first well-known novella was actually called Kung Zhong Xiaojie, The Stewardess. Mm. Um, and I picked that one out almost random uh, and translated it. Um, it, was an, it was an academic project. I translated and prefaced it. And after I had the whole thing done, I set out on an endless a vain journey to get in touch with Wang Shuo that after many, many, many years and plenty of bogus cell phone numbers uh, ended up all coming to naught. But that was the first project. Um, and the second, I moved into modern Chinese literature, the literature of the May 4th period, um, and did a bunch of short stories by a, a modernist author named He Qifang, and that was the beginning of my publication history as a translator. I, I managed to place one of those stories when I was very young. I got one into the Kenyan Review and then a couple of the other uh, pieces in the years following that. And it was right about that time that I was 23. I moved back to China, um, began working with Eric Abramson um, yep. on Paper Republic, and we we started to really get into the business end of Paper Republic and then into the magazine. And by that time, everything was in full swing from a translation standpoint. 
it sounds like um, you were a lot more put together at 23 than I was. That's that's impressive. You know, all of these, all of our stories in in the telling sound like we were more put together than we really were. Yeah, yeah. I often wonder that when um, I've managed to do something decent amidst the general kind of muddling through of my life, mm-hmm. and people only see the decent part. I wonder if it's the same for everyone else. I guess that's exactly. True. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we all have. I don't know about you, but my mid twenties, early and mid twenties, there were a lot of it feels like there were oceans of lost hours and plenty of long dark nights of the soul. But I was in Beijing at the time um, doing a number of different things. Uh, and it's funny, they seem, looking back privately, we often think that we wasted a lot of time. But you may find when you look back again with a calendar in hand that actually, you know, you were always doing something. Yeah, not all those who wander are lost or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Wang Shuo there and you mentioned Eric Abrahamson. So if anyone's listening and is interested in either of those names, uh, Eric Abrahamson was on this very show before talking about actually the very same author that we're talking about today, Ge Fei. Yes, we did um, Mm -hmm. Flock of Brown Birds with him. And Wang Shuo, he's, he's somewhat dear to the heart of this podcast because he was the very second author we covered in episode two. Uh, hmm. We did his, um, I say we, it's just me. Um, I did his Please Don't Call Me Human. And I've got yep. the other uh, novel of his available in translation, Playing for Thrills, on my mm-hmm. shelf. And I did a bonus episode. I don't know if you know this. Someone translated and a company, I think it's a company that specializes in manga, uh, published a manhwa adaptation of one of his stories. Um, the English title they went for is, uh, oh God, what is it? It's like stray, oh, wild animals. Yeah, this is Dong Wu Xiong Meng. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a manhua, mm-hmm. I guess in Chinese and in English that is out there. I don't, I don't, I God knows how many people have read it. Yeah, no, to my, I did a lot of research on Dong Wu Xiong Meng because mm. it's such a good novella. And after having zero luck contacting the author of Kung Lung Xiaojia, I was just, rabid for something more saleable that would bring a u.s publisher sort of into my corner and dong xiongmeng is very definitely that that piece they published the english language translation most recently was published in canada and this was the better part of i want to say 10 years ago but it of course it was adapted into an incredibly famous film right um voiced over by Jiang Wen uh, in the heat of the sun, which is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I want to say fifth generation Chinese cinema. I, may, I might be wrong. Um, someone, a, a film person will correct me there. We, we, we do have at least one Chinese cinema expert who listens. So uh, Maya, if you're listening, let us know if, if we've got our numbers right for the generations. I can never remember. <laughs> in any case, Dong uh, Xiongmeng is, in my opinion, the best of Wang Shuo's shorter fiction. Um, and it always burned me that I was never able to connect with the author, the piece, and bring that to a U.S. publisher in time. Do you think it was hard to get to him because he's been kind of I don't, censored? Is maybe slightly too strong, but he, you know, he was a bit of a operating on the edge. Seems to have either quietened or been quietened. Do you think that's why he was hard to get to, or am I reading too much into it? Um, I think it's partly that, and it's and partly personality based. Mm. Wang Shuo doesn't like to be contacted by the people whom he does not know. 
Uh, he lives last, I knew he lived in Los Angeles. Oh, right. Um, and it re- remains in contact with only a small number of people. I, uh, a couple of his erstwhile friends gave me cell phone numbers that never worked. So, so you're <laughs> off the track. Never gonna be, yeah. Well, I don't know. You yeah, maybe, maybe mm. definitely. Um, but geez, I, I can never tell. I couldn't absolutely never tell running around after Wang Shuo was ridiculous. Mm. Running around after Wang Shuo would be a good name for a, a novel actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a Wang Shuo-esque protagonist. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so we've been talking enough about Wang Shuo. We should get to our offer for today, who I, I mentioned is Go Fei. And my first set of questions aren't specifically about our book uh, for today, Peach Blossom Paradise. I actually want to talk about the trilogy that Peach mm-hmm. Blossom Paradise is part of. And this is for basically selfish reasons. Um, it's called the Jiangnan Trilogy. And anyone who's listened to, probably if you, had a, if you listened to a scattershot of the show's episodes, you would have listeners would have heard me, you know, rambling on about one of the handful of sort of I don't know buzzwords that I obsess over from Chinese, and mm-hmm. Jiangnan is one of them. So rather mm-hmm. than me rattling off my understanding of it for the nth time, could you tell the listeners what does Jiangnan mean to you, and what is its significance in this trilogy by Gofei? Absolutely. So Jiangnan is a historical cultural complex within the sort of imagined gestalt of China as a historical entity. That's a lot of $100 words to it's tell good, you... Good use to, of them, to, <laughs> to say that it refers to a region of the mind as well as a region of the earth. Mm. So Jiangnan, literally just meaning south of the river, means south of the Changjiang, south of the Long River. Uh, and it refers to that area beginning at its northern edge with the Yangzhou uh, region on the southern border of the Long River and moving south and mostly southeast. Um, mm. Jiangnan is historically the, has one, of, one of the two breadbaskets of China. Surely it is the site of the most arable and productive land in China in the pre-modern era, through, I should say, throughout the pre-modern age. Mm-hmm. Um, it is lowland, it, it's, 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 it's the land of rice, right? And here right. we have, um, if you ever look at a map of China, you will discover that of its massive land mass, only some incredibly small percentage is arable, is, is in fact amenable to high density farming. and the Jiangnan area really is that area. And historically speaking, for a number of different reasons, it has fostered a separate culture of its own. A separate, it has fostered a separate culture and regional identity of its own. It is home to several of the most famous metropolitan cities. In the contemporary age, we think of Shanghai first. But long before Shanghai, there was Hangzhou, and there was Suzhou, and there mm. was Yangzhou. I mean, these are, these are cities from time immemorial that have been sites of uh, business, pleasure, uh, short-term imperial governments. Um, they are the homelands of incredibly famous poets, uh, writers, scholars, painters. Suzhou and Hangzhou in particular have 
had that reputation, right? The Chinese phrase, Shang Yu Tian Pang, Xia Yu Su Hang, right? There's heaven up above and Su Dou and Hangzhou on earth. Yeah. Um, is, is part of this. And at the same time, while these, this region has become famous for the bounty of its harvests, the beauty of its women, the talent of its poets, the in incredible views and pleasures of its metropolises, it's also been this weird sort of otherized place for imperial governments and cultures to run to when the North was invaded by pick your barbarian tribe. <laughs> right, and I use yeah. the word barbarian in, in quotes because they were thought of as barbarians by the central Han. Um, when, uh, for instance, when the Song Dynasty capital was uh, destroyed by the Jurchens, they moved provincial, provisionally to Hangzhou, right? Um, and it is there, it was thought that in the, I mean, the beauties of Hangzhou, that the dynasty continued to wither and die. Something similar happened to the Ming dynasty when they were driven out of Beijing uh, by the Manchurians. Or by the, I'm sorry when they were driven out of Beijing by the Manchus, mm. um, they moved to Nanjing. Um, and in the Southern environment, uh, the last scions of the Ming court essentially abnegated their responsibilities and the dynasty died. Um, lastly, and this is most important for Gofei himself, the cities of Jiangnan of the South have a reputation for porousness. Their boundaries were fairly open there was incredible, uh, there was a significant amount of ebb and flow of people and goods from the countryside into the city. Green spaces that we normally associate with the country migrated into the city in the form of scholar gardens and parks. And the people from the city often moved out of the countryside and spent lots of time out in the countryside. There was a, there was a back and forth, an ebb and flow, a sort of organic feeling to it that Gofei himself has talked about, um, especially when he starts comparing it to the commercial monolith that is Shanghai. Right, that's interesting. Um, when you were recounting uh, all the things about Suzhou and Hangzhou, and I'm I'm not going to be able to rattle it off, but that that phrase about you know heaven heaven above Suhang uh, below, I think it was. That's that's stirring a lot of memories for me. Um, partly because so the time in China I spent most of it was in Shanghai, so I was often taking the chance to scoot south to Hangzhou or uh, west to Suzhou. But my very first mm -hmm. year in China was spent in in Zhejiang in just Deqing, just one of the counties in the sort of halfway between Hangzhou and Huzhou. And yeah, every, everything you were saying was bringing back memories of that. Where was I going with that? Oh, yes. Yes. So the, the point you, you made about porousness, I'd never thought about that before, but it rings really true, actually, um, in my memories of Hangzhou, because so obviously Hangzhou has, has the West Lake in it. So it's this pretty modern Chinese city, but right right about in one of its dead centers anyway there's this incredible very large man-made ancient um, man-made lake but over on its west mm -hmm. side you have mountains and hills there's the Longjing um, tea village mm -hmm. and yet it's still like a city and I mean I, I suppose yeah I'd never seen anything like that before um, even mm -hmm. in my, my 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 own country where you suppose you know supposedly a place of great natural beauty and this the city that is a uh, 
where, where I grew up and where I am right now, Dundee, we're really quite mm-hmm. close to the Highlands. Uh, you can catch a Dundee bus up there and get mm-hmm. there in something, I don't know, something like an hour. I talked about riding that bus in the episode on Radish by Moyan, but mm-hmm. there isn't like a blurring between the two. You just sort of, you pass out of the suburbs and then you're going through the countryside and then you're either going one way into inland another way along the coast or north um eventually heading for the glens there is no sort of mistaking one for the other at least that i can think Mm -hmm. of and i can't think of seeing much of that in any other place in china i've been now that you mention it so yeah that's that's interesting i can't think exactly how that relates to anything i've read by gofei but maybe i maybe i missed it does it can you think of a way it relates to peach blossom paradise Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> there is um, the the porousness and fluid, organic fluidity that I speak of and that Gauthier has spoken of resonates, and we see its undertones in the, the attempted creations of various kinds of utopia right. within Peach Blossom Paradise, which is really... A, what this novel is about. It's not the only thing it's about, but it's uh-huh. one of the major themes. Um, and in particular, the bandit haven of Hua Jiaxue, which is the title of the second part of the novel, right. um, is uh, describes a, a human settlement that has been integrated into the natural flow of sunlight and wind and water to the best of the architect's ability. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's a town, but I, it, at least when I was reading it, I was visualizing it as a town, sort of, sort of out of the way, not quite out of the way, and by a by a lake. So yeah, yeah. Now you mention it, yes. I maybe I maybe was in my mind I was visualizing it more as a village than something urban. Maybe that's. Oh, definitely a village. Right. Most definitely a village. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to suggest that it was a city. Right. Um, but it's, uh, it is, you know, you, he describes the uh, organization of waterways, mm. right, that send wa- running water to every house in the village. Um, it's interesting, of course, because one of the great tensions in that novel is between man-made space and na- man-made, I should say it this way, one of the great tensions in the novel is between man-made enclosed spaces and open traversable spaces. So right. we notice, for instance, that dangerous things cross the open spaces in Peach Blossom Spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, people appear out of nowhere, fires start, boats come from across the lake, Man, uh, Qing Dynasty officials ride over the plains to cut people's heads off, a spy travels through the fields and the woods to spy on local villagers who are fomenting rebellion, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, we have the spaces of like the covered walkway at Hua Jiaxue. We have the Lu family estate with its outer wall in uh, the first and last parts of the book. And we notice how that space starts to tumble down. Mm. Um, so there's a real there's a really tense relationship between an interior and exterior that happens. I was going to ask a question later about how we could try and connect um, this novel with the other Gofei story we covered on the podcast, um, Flock of Mm -hmm. Brown Birds. And now you mention it, um, something has occurred to me, which 
I guess it registered unconsciously, but now I've got a way to articulate it. Um, reading Flock of Brown Birds, the character literally can't really either he says something like either time is broken in some way or my memory's blocked. So the whole mm-hmm. thing kind of you read the whole thing in a kind of a haze, never knowing what's at least in, like in terms of space, what's very far beyond this guy in his house or the dark roads he's walking down, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. And you don't know really what's ahead or behind him in time as well. And yeah, what you said about the settled spaces and the places in between them in um, Peach Blossom Paradise, it's totally true. Like, um, so I don't know if this would interest you at all. It might interest some listeners. I've been playing um, one of the Witcher games. Me and my girlfriend got an old Xbox One recently, secondhand. Wow. And it's one of these nice. fantasy games where um, you have a great big map and you can explore it. And as you explore it, you find more things. But, you know, it'd be a mm-hmm. boring fantasy game if there was nothing or boring RPG if there was no monsters between the towns. So you wander around, mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to be around the corner, and it's usually something that will try and kill you. Or if it won't kill you, it will give you a surprise. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, you know, like any of these games has a, a fog around your... Um, you have a certain circumference around yourself. Yeah, around your... Mm-hmm. Or, or, or in the map, the little mini map at the top right of your screen, you have where you are, everything in a certain proximity to you is revealed. But almost like ninety nine percent of the world, it's blacked out. You don't really know what's going on. And yeah, like mm-hmm. the, the although the setting of Peach Blossom Paradise is it's a more or less real historical China, it's got a feeling of being a very strange, mysterious place. Maybe aided by the fact no one's got telephones or smartphones or, mm-hmm. or TV or radio, so it's a quite a natural yeah. sort of you know. How would you know what was going on in most of the world, even in a fairly you know in a in the in the Qing Dynasty, which was you know not not exactly medieval times, but even then, they were clearly confusing sure. times. Sure, absolutely. And we, one of the things that we see in a number of Goethe's work is a penchant to imagine semi-connected, semi-realist spaces that are often haunting in their isolation. This happens, this is, I mean, this is how I feel the set home setting to be in Flock of Brown Birds is how I feel multiple spaces exist in Peach Blossom Paradise. And it's most right. certainly what something that we see in the Invisibility Cloak. Which you also translated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Several years ago. <laughs> yeah. That one, as I was reading it, I was like, aha, this is Goethe writing some sort of naturalistic, realist thing. And then it got near the end and I was like, wait a minute. This got uh-huh. weird and I didn't even see it creeping up on me until it's too late. Yep. 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 He's impossible to classify in that respect. And the same, that really is true. Even though Peach Blossom Paradise is in a number of ways, very much like it very much participates in the sort of like doorstop length, epic historical fiction mm. uh, novel that many writers of his generation have tried their hand at. There is still a semi mystical half unreal touch to it yeah it's it's very subtle as i was this was going to be another one of my questions further down the uh, little pdf i made of questions um but it's worth it's worth mentioning now um so yeah in my personal journey and on the podcast reading all these translated chinese books quite a lot of the sort of doorstop historical stories you described are out there and they're usually a recounting of the various stages of modern chinese history Mm -hmm. um you go the characters go through various traumas um it's a bit cyclical in that in that sense 
and mm-hmm. there's a, I, I'm going to have to get my exact wording because it's a quite specific thought. Just scroll down to the correct question. Yeah, so one, one the common theme I noticed and then had my suspicions confirmed. I was reading some like academic uh, secondary um, criticism in you know not in the sense of criticism in the academic sense, like someone writing yeah, secondary uh, scholarship. Secondary scholarship. There you go. <laughs> um, someone someone in their secondary scholarship. I, I think it was actually in prep for this book confirmed my sort of intuition. So the feeling I, I got from a lot of these big serious. Chinese novels, which seem to be so popular, and at least with publishers in translation, is something like life is absurd and chaotic. Both individual life plans and collective pushes for progress, which are quite significant in 20th century China, are doomed to unintended consequences and gradual dissipation. And one thought I had was, it's a way to um, not make a direct critique about any particular ideology. If you just say something like, life is a it's a mire or life is pointless or humans are foolish or whatever. And as I was starting on this book, I was like, Oh man, he's my, I had a, well, I, it wasn't something I was certain about, but I had a worry at the back of my mind that, Oh no, he's turned from a very kind of interesting, surreal modernist that I read in flock of brown birds to a fairly generic, serious Chinese novelist. But um, I feel that worry was dissipated a bit because yeah, it, it, does something a bit different. It's very subtle. The kind of mysteriousness is there at a more a lower level. And also, this book's not actually that huge. Um, right. It takes a little bit. It took me a bit of a while to get through. Right. I didn't start to read it very quickly until maybe like close to the halfway point. Mm-hmm. Um. So it's not a teeny novel, but it's not a great monster either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of scale, the single volume is much less than a number of the massive historical tomes that, you know, it's like, uh, what's, it's like um, Zhang Wei's You Are on the Plane, it's like Gao Yuan, which is several million characters, or any number of Moyen's novels, including Life and Death Are Wearing Me Out, um, or Jia Pinghua wrote a huge novel called Gu Lu Cun, um, which we attempted to sell 10 years ago or so. Um, and, and in many, many of those uh, large historical novels feature the, the foreground, the powerless subject amid the mad rush of historical narrative. Right, right. totally. It's, it's the, right, you, you think of the movie To Live, right? You think of Huo Zhe, um, and I think your description of the individual amidst the current fits perfectly in line with with that style of book mm. and later movie uh peace Wolf in paradise is significantly different and it's it's interesting that you you mentioned having that worry when you started it out because when i started it out i had almost exactly the same worry um having having begun my my career in Gothe's with the invisibility cloak and some of his short stories um and knowing him of course as one of the the leaders of the avant-garde movement in the late 80s and the early 90s i was surprised to see him wading into the sort of historical subject in the way that he was Mm. but there is an internal there is an introspective clarity to Peach Blossom Paradise and a darkness 
in it that are not to be found in, I think, many of the historical fiction, you know, epics of relatively the same time period in Chinese literature. Um, the character of Xiaomi, of Lu Xiaomi, our main our protagonist, is she wanders through certain spaces and experiences certain transformation that are not part of a great historical narrative. You know, they're not allegories for X, Y, Z historical movement or leader or party or whatever. Right. They're, they are less than that and they are also more. Um, and while it's absolutely true that Peach Blossom Parody, Paradise Peach Blossom Paradise describes certain kinds of futility and the best made plans of mice and men gang after glay type thing. At the same time, this is a much more conflicted, subconsciously in involved kind of futility and frustration. You know, this is not the this is not the the husband and wife with the daughter, the pregnant daughter who can't get a doctor because he's been starving. This is not that plot. Um, there is something more sinister and more mythical at work. Yeah. One, one of the two, I think it was either two or three. I'm going to say two, one of the two pieces of secondary reading I did. Um, it was just, you know, grabbed off of JSTOR or, or somewhere like that. It was a essay on, it was using a literary theory. I forget what its exact name is. Something like fictional minds, which sounds like it could mean just about anything, but it's an interesting uh, framing of looking at a, a piece of fiction where you mm -hmm. analyze it in terms, of, in terms of to what extent does the text create a sort of virtual personality? Uh, mm -hmm. particularly specifically their mind be it their their conscious or their unconscious i guess and that you know some sometimes reading an, an essay can make the book interesting but kind of flattens it into politics or history or, or something and sometimes an academic essay on a book is, is is just lame and you get nothing out of it this one made me yeah, I think it was it enhanced it just on like a literary level, looking back at it and thinking, oh yeah, he he did use technique X, Y, and Z. He wasn't just writing a a yarn. And it, it, it I think the essay talked mostly about Shomi and her mind. Mm -hmm. And without trying to spoil anything, we start off the book in her head, but we're not always in her head for the entirety of the book. But even when we're not in her head. There, there are things going on either either in our conscious but we don't conscious mind but we don't see it because it's we're not getting that perspective anymore or it's going on at some unconscious level and she's going through changes that she doesn't even understand and then as the unconscious does it bubbles up later and although it's you know it's not written explicitly anywhere he doesn't say he does you know it's not described explicitly but somewhere under the hood so to speak, somewhere in the in the planning or in the, th the thinking of Gaffey, he's made at least this one character, maybe other ones, a pretty interesting simulated virtual personality. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, there you go. I, it's striking, actually, how 
how um, fruitful some of the these like what you'd think would be a cheesy sci-fi terminology simulation or virtual but um yeah it's fiction is representational it's always mm -hmm. at least if it's realist it's simulating something um, absolutely and the yeah. best the best literary criticism the real literary scholarship is simple words that change the way you read and they it really can do that when it's done right yeah totally totally um another thing i found that makes me a really engaged close uh, reader is if i really obsess over a book and start rereading it and rereading it i don't know if i've ever talked about this on the show or if it's too i, I don't know i know i've talked about this recently but um i found it it's a little bit like watching a scene in a movie over and over and over you'll see mm -hmm. things in the background or you'll see extras faces or in a book mm -hmm. you will be able to you know when you're I, in my experience anyway when you're reading fiction you have a fuzzy picture of what a place should look like but if you are really engaged and the author has given you a reasonable amount of stuff to work with you'll be able to create again an amazing uh, virtual place and where am i going with this and yeah and you can end up with um something that god knows if the author intended it but i get the sense you could probably do that with this book i get the sense there's a lot of hidden details or just details i didn't pick up on my first reading oh absolutely and uh, a plethora of visual imagery mm. um it's interesting i translated a huge piece of this novel in a painting studio um, right. my, my girlfriend was in the MFA program at RISD at the time. And I used to sit in my rocking chair in her studio while she made art and I would translate a chapter and then I would read it to her aloud. Um, and she made the very interesting observation very, very early on at how visually rich, uh, and textured go face prose is. And I hadn't noticed it cause I'm not an image person. I'm a words person. <laughs> Um, but as she heard it, like it's, it's extremely, the, the mind's eye is richly stimulated by this, by this narrative. Definitely. I remember, um, I think I felt that most strongly with a flock of brown birds, but maybe that's because it's, maybe because he's a younger writer, it has images that kind of call for you to visualize them because they're so strange. Whereas in Peach Blossom Paradise, it's a fairly naturalistic setting. But yeah, um, the ri the richness of yeah the physical things is 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 totally there. Um, rewinding slightly to what you said or what we were talking about um, about wor worrying that he was making he he was settling down as a more generic you know in quotes important Chinese writer. It struck me while you were talking that some. There's a little bit of a sweet spot in, um, I think, in books and in films, where someone who's a little, uh, you know, a bit of a master with their own particular artistic vision, who's figured themselves out as a writer or a director or whatever, away from the norm, doing artsy stuff or non-mainstream stuff or whatever, when they, I guess, in in either either they get like if it's a director, perhaps they'll sign up for something with a big studio because they want to do something or because they want the money, who knows? Or if an author just decides to write a book that's more in uh, maybe genre conventions, uh -huh. it, 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 can, it, it can either be very disappointing and lame or it can fall in a sweet spot of something that has all the strengths of whatever pre-made um, slot that they're falling into, but then their own particular 
um, strength of, of their vision. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to bring out my higher dollar value words today um, to keep up with you. But like the, the one that's, um, I guess the, the first example that pops into my head is Christopher Nolan doing a Batman movie. And I remember uh-huh. like seeing posters for that as a kid and thinking, oh man, are, are they really making more Batman films? Who cares? And my dad was like, yes, but you say son, it's, it's Christopher Nolan. He's a great director. And I was like, I don't care. It's another <laughs> Batman film. They made one like five years ago. Why are they making more? And that, mm-hmm. that, that, that trend at least has continued. But um, it was, yeah, at least one of the films in that trilogy is one of the best ones, or at least in, in the eyes of many critics and myself. That's you an incredible, number two? Uh, yeah, number two. I mean, I, I like the other ones, but number two is really something special. Um, mm. And it's like like we, what we were saying. It's you 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 could I think you could watch that one ten times and still miss stuff. It's very multi layered, as well as being having a pretty singular vision coded there between the lines of your superhero m- movie. But um, I should probably we've had a lot of talk of video games and superhero movies. I'm I'm trying to stay serious. Um, well, I'm sorry. What was the question that was behind this piece? What, I'm not quite sure. What was the question? Oh, it was more of an observation. Can I turn it into? Oh, I see. I see. My <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. I might have said here's a question, and then I didn't come up with the question. I do that quite a lot. It would it would if I was doing that to you at an offer a translator event, then I'd be the biggest asshole. But I'm the host of a podcast, so I can get away with it. You do whatever you want. Exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> so here's a serious question, and we were kind of touching on this. Um, aside from everything is futile, um, what can we say about the, the politics in the book? It, like, it, if it has a position, maybe it doesn't. Mm. If it doesn't have a particular position, then what can we say otherwise about the politics in the book? So the po- politics as an atmosphere, politics mm. as, a, as a world are... are a part of this book that absolutely cannot be missed because this book, like the other two books in the trilogy is positioned in a liminal, a political liminal space. Right. Okay. In this case, it is the, it is the aftermath of the 1898 hundred days reform, which is one of the most important and most easily forgotten periods of modern Chinese history in which um, a group of progressive intellectuals who were also government officials wrested control of the government for three and a half months and attempted to create an egalitarian democracy in China, like like just in the middle of the end of the Qing dynasty. Um, and this was a time of massive political upheaval, of military defeat, of economic uncertainty, in which a small group of people who believed fervently in the idea of the quote, great unity, um, which is mentioned a couple of times in the narrative, essentially tried to, tried to build a utopia out of nothing, a modernist utopia out of nothing, and they failed. And the people inside that project, both the people who tried to replicate it and the people who freeloaded on it and the people who actively opposed it, found themselves in in utterly new territory yeah and and it you know it took a lot of lives i wonder how how well it compares to um like the kind of tail end of the 60s early 70s the tail end of the hippie dream because i'm thinking of um one or two male characters in early on in the book who are or actually no more than one or two who are 
are or have been somewhat tied to these um, like progressive or revolutionary ideals you're describing and they end up mm -hmm. just kind of being like uh, i don't know a, a, a predatory free love guy from the early 70s they're they're mm -hmm. quite happy to use the ideas that suit their um baser desires i guess and we've got the sense that there was something a little bit more enlightened not that long ago in the past but the um the high ideas die more easily than the the brutish ones i suppose mm -hmm. well it is uh, the, the the scene which Peach Blossom Paradise describes is one in which private motive and public mission cover each other up very well. Mm. Um, and this is, I mean, that's probably more of a truism than it sounds like, even as this is the case with many movements of great political change the world over it sounds kind of like life as well <laughs> yeah they're hijacked almost immediately yeah but in this case i mean there's there's such a feeling of of discontinuity of like potentially tectonic break where the system of government and social organization that has persisted for you know well over a millennium um that characters like Zhang Ziyuan um, are they 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 describe a sort of how do I want to put this brutal take no prisoners and merciless energy of reform. Yeah, there's right. I don't, I don't know if there's a better word than bloodthirsty, but mm -hmm. like the idea of like taking lives. For revolution is part mm -hmm. of the virtue of the whole thing like i'm sure a few characters um that guy we meet early on jang jang ji and, and some others someone asked them what is revolution about and you know uh, what we'd think would there'd be something we, we'd expect to hear something like ah democracy liberty egality fraternity da, da, da. But it's like no it's mm -hmm. it's about killing people um that's mm -hmm. how you get stuff done you kill people what for mm -hmm. well you know just to to be revolutionary but why do you do that and you know circular logic mm -hmm. that's right and you know this is um that kind of revolution that that idea simplistic idea of revolution is simply cutting people's heads off it we see echoed throughout the major revolutionary movements of chinese history i mean that's that's the basic equation that's grabbed a hold of during the cultural revolution Mm. I mean, this is going to sound a bit silly, but when I when I have a, a day of work ahead of a day of work ahead of me, the work I like best is the stuff that gives me a clear sense I'm getting something done. Ideally, something fairly mm -hmm. simple, repetitive that I am in particular quite good at. And you know, you, if you were revolutionary, killing people might feel like one way of getting things done, particularly if they're somehow labelable as undesirable. Uh, I'm going to steer us backwards slightly because um, there's something I've been meaning to say. You mentioned the 100 Days Reform, and mm -hmm. that's mentioned on mentioned on the book's blurb. Um, the book's got a really interesting blurb because um, it's pretty it's it's pretty long, um, and it's pretty unafraid of getting into like historical context and big ideas mm -hmm. as well as just taking mm -hmm. the story. Um, maybe that's because it's a NYRB book and that's part of the style, but um, I've, I've, maybe I'm, I don't know if you were in, involved in the blurbing at all. I've, it occurred to me. I just, wrote the blurb. Right. Okay. Uh, well, the, 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 I'm sorry. The, I wrote the rough draft for yeah. the blurb and then my editor in chief, 
um, who is amazing, rewrote it. Yeah, yeah. interesting peek behind the scenes there. But I'm wondering, is the first paragraph, is that going to be the same for every book in the trilogy? And then the second paragraph is specific for each book? That depends on no ability of the period being described. Right. Okay. Right. Translations are crafted with the, with the target audience in mind. Hmm. Um, you will find if you talk to more than a few young Chinese people today, that they don't know what the 100 Days Reform is. Sure. Let alone your average English language reader who speaks no Chinese and has, you know, no reliable... Uh, training in Chinese history, sure. uh, so it becomes it becomes necessary to set the stage as concisely as possible before we move on to the book. Um, I don't think the same will be necessary for the second and the, especially not the third, um, which are set much closer to our time. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Um. Anyway, the question, or not a question, the open-ended sort of statement. Um, mm -hmm. I was going to throw in your direction. I was going to note that the hundred days reform is mentioned and described and put in context in the blurb. Um, but in the book itself, unless I missed it, um, hundred the hundred days reform isn't named in the book. But we are dealing with mm -hmm. people who were quite possibly involved with it back in the day. Do you think that's? I mean, you just mentioned that um, younger Chinese people, there plenty of them, maybe don't know about this particular episode in history. Do you think this is a difference between the English edition and the Chinese edition that Gofei would know that a lot of his readers would know that's the that's the particular event we're in the aftermath of, and in the English edition we need it in the blurb, or is it is it more that the mil you know the milu is the thing that the English language readers need to be clued into rather than I think I think Gofei would have would have presumed that his original readers would have at least been able to identify the historical period. But I also think if we look at his technique for description and the choices that he makes, who to narrate, how to narrate it, who to follow. For instance, if you were, if you were someone who was interested in sort of the greatest hits of Chinese history, and you were interested in reading a novel that jived with that narrative, you wouldn't read this novel because it, it's a, it's a, Xiaomi is a person who lives and dies in semi-silence. Um, right. She, right? I mean, there's seclusion, isolation, self-isolation and uh, self-prohibition are, are hugely active parts of this book. And it's not like, you know, we don't meet any Sun Yat-sens. We don't meet any Mao Zedongs. No. He is filling in He's bringing light to an extremely dark corner of the sort of modern historical narrative. Right. You know, so there's, there's, there, it's, it, it seems to me fairly clear that while he knows his audience knows something, he's more banking on that there's a bunch of stuff they don't know. Yeah. I can think of um, equivalent narratives in um, other countries and other places where, you know, although we, we remember the revolution that, you know, produced a new order and and won. Lots of revolutions mm -hmm. can be put down beforehand. Like maybe France as an example. We we all think the French Revolution is the first. You know, the re French Revolution, but there were mm -hmm. plenty that didn't. You know, didn't get mm -hmm. off the ground. Um, and that you know, 
people the, and the characters in those stories aren't a million miles away from some of the characters we meet in Beach Blossom Paradise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, we've been going for a while now, so let's charge on. Um, yeah, let's charge on to the story in particular rather than just the whole trilogy. Mm-hmm. We've kind of hinted at a few things, um, but if if we could go into like maybe plot and characters, the 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 less away from the lofty ideas towards the specifics, what's um, Peach Blossom Paradise all about? Well, it's the story of really it's the story of one young woman from a wealthy family in southern China who spends her entire life struggling to maintain control over her own life, both her future and even her body. Um, She is born into a very traditional wealthy family, one that has all of the trappings of wealth that as it was distributed throughout the civil service and which runs according to traditional neo-confucian rules but it is it all of that comes to nothing when she is kidnapped um and her kidnapping is the first in a series of dislocations that take her first away from her home and then presumably as far away as yokohama and japan uh before coming back to her native village to attempt to institute an instant modernization, which is something of a farce and something of a tragedy. And Mm -hmm. it is at the end of that dream when it comes crashing down at the hands of nepotistic late Qing dynasty officials. And I guess this is, this is the beginning of the the Republican era. So early warlord era slash Republican era corruption. When those figures bring her down, she is forced once again to withdraw into herself. Um, and it is in her complete self-withdrawal, the sort of hermitage at the end of the story, that we begin to see the lights of the next novel sort of being shown to us. Mm. Um, what you were saying about how um, we kind of, towards the end of the book, the next stage of modern Chinese history history is arriving and a lot of our characters meet their fate one way or the other as it arrives. And there's an interesting thing that in, in the, in the English edition, it's as footnotes. You've got, I think you've got a little translator's note that explains how it is in the original, but I'll Mm -hmm. I'll just refer to them as footnotes. Um, There's little footnotes that kind of tell you um, what happened, you know, what the character went on to do or what happened to them. So mm-hmm. something like a slightly more um, classy literary, literary equivalent of what old, those old like 80s and 90s TV shows and movies used to do, where it'll show you the character's face and be like, Jim Jones went on to blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. Something like mm-hmm. that. But Goface doing something a little bit more interesting because he's, I, I guess you can't call it alternate history, but he's playing with real history and um, yes. his fictional creations quite interesting. Is there anything you could say about that? Yeah, absolutely. There's something important that needs to be said about that. Those are quote unquote author's notes. Right. Um, Most, if we were to be, you know, hair splittingly accurate about this, then we would call them narrator's notes because they are written in the voice of the speaker, the narrator of the novel. And, but they're doing exactly what you said they were doing. They are, they're playing with history. This is fake history, right? We're following we're following fictional characters into a real sounding space. 
Um, so when we have the history of Tiger, um, or when we have, you know, the, the male character near the end of the book, or when we have the, the history of Black Dragon Temple, mm. which he extends into the communist era and the, the modern day. You know, these are all places, and he's made them sound so realistic. Totally, yeah. Uh, including the painting, right? The Peach Blossom Paradise painting in the beginning of, mm. in the beginning of the book, which which is sort of like the beginning of everything, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me. I, I can't think of specific examples, but maybe um, something along the lines of you you go into a movie, you stick on a movie, and you know that it's done in a fake documentary style or it's it's going to say on a screen uh on a on a panel based on a true story but you know it's um it's just uh an affectation you know it's totally not real but then you find you find yourself halfway through your second guessing yourself like oh wait no did this really happen Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what what happened to me i read your your translator's note explaining what these footnotes were going to be and i was like ah it's just a silly game go face playing um but then i read one or two of them and was like wait so are these real places he's taken from history and put in his book and yeah it's sort of uncanny um it's not i i I went in thinking that this might be a bit cheesy this might seem like he didn't need to do it and it's self-indulgent but yeah the however in whatever way he did it it's it it blur it blurs the line between fiction reality quite nicely Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly Hmm. yeah um, what other sort of literary techniques um, is he deploying in the book? Mm. Well, um, I'd love to be, you know, I'd love to be able to rattle off a list of <laughs> <laughs> you know, standard literary critical terms here. Um, but... Well, as we said earlier, I'm, the terms don't make the, the strength of the commentary. It's the... Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. And, I mean, there's... Um, there is a significant amount of uh, simultaneous or non non consecutive narration that goes on so he makes frequent frequent use of things like the flashback mm. um, we notice that um, it's used to sort of secondary narrative from from other characters mouths is a staple of the second part of the book as we hear about you know the the re- we we hear important events retold more often than we see them being enacted right especially yeah. when she is when she's at Huazashu. um other than that um i am i i have one I, mean, um, mm-hmm. I, I noticed repetition was interesting um mm-hmm. things repeat but it's in a very particular way so thinking of another um another author who uses repetition right off the top of my head um i've read his Song of Ice and Fire series books twice. Uh, George R. R. Martin. So venturing okay. back into nerdy fantasy territory, he has these phrases that um, pop up again and again, which I guess are a part of mm-hmm. making the world seem like a real world. Um, there, they do sometimes have some sort of deeper significance. Like there's one which becomes more and more prevalent as the war turns the country to shit. Um, it's words are wind, and that one's mm-hmm. actually quite good because. The idea is society is being unraveled by the war. Society is built on what um, promises we make each other. Money is based on a promise of, you know, getting something in return. Words have lost their value because society is falling apart. Words are wind. Um, mm-hmm. But it's repeated very frequently, so you can never forget it. Whereas yep. um, the stuff that 
repeats in Peach Blossom Paradise, it's from what I noticed, it's frequent enough that you'll notice something is reappearing, but it's mm-hmm. spaced out enough and subtle enough that the cause and effect between the two is not non-existent, but is not clear cut either. And I think that's really quite good because that's how like life works usually. When something pops up again, you can't always, tr- you know that there's some kind of cause and effect, but you know it might be very fuzzy or you know you, that even if there is a clear chain of things that have gone from A to B, you're never going to be able to trace them because they're so interconnected mm-hmm. and confusing. And life's like that. And I think that's why life foils us so often. We can't possibly keep tabs on everything that happens when we're not looking or, you know, that might, and that might have something to, that might feed into what you said about how we're always hearing about things secondhand because our show me or we, the observer or the narrator can't be privy to everything at the same time. And there's all these things written in between the lines. So yeah, <laughs> I'm running out yeah, of breath, absolutely. so I can't keep that thought going. No, that's I, I I absolutely agree, and I hadn't thought of that. But um, there are multiple kinds of repetition that are that are very consciously at play here, um, both on the verbal level as people repeat things. Um, uh, there's a sort of a feeling of aphorism. Um, the how do I put this? the the questionable maxim returns again and again and again mm-hmm. um particularly while she's at Hwadasha and then after um just as the motif of of the peach blossom paradise the the traditional utopia written by Taoyunming um appears again and again certain phrases you know Hayu the the nun the ex-buddhist nun who uh, who Xiumi lives on the island with in Huajiaxue has tons of phrases like that that she repeats over and over and appear to make sense to her, but in the greater scheme of things, they feel fragile. Uh, mm. Meanwhile, obviously, there are certain objects that also appear from time to time and carry this like sort of mysterious weight with them whenever they appear. Mm. And that's another thing that I think refre- re- uh, reflects life. Um, a thing I think it's come up on some of the modernist, uh, yeah, actually in the last episode, the Tan Shui episode, we were talking about how in uh, literary modernism or any kind of modernist art, you take a non-realistic approach and it actually describes reality better than realism does because reality is, mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a better word, very strange and fragmented. Life is, mm-hmm. life's not very, life isn't as neat and tidy. If you actually think about life, it's not nearly as neat and tidy as it appears to be on the surface. Um, so yeah, like the thing of people constantly throwing out questionable statements that they seem to believe in very earnestly. Yeah, it's all over the book and it might seem a bit of an affectation, but almost every day I hear someone do the same thing. Um, I've mm-hmm. just remembered, a, I, I tell this story a lot. I don't think I've told it on the show. Um, so my old job in Shanghai, I was in an international division of a school and um, I had a, one of my bosses who's a foreign guy. Um living in living in, in, in China, an American living in China who didn't want to go back. And who knows why he came up to me and one of the other younger teachers. We weren't talking about anything very heavy. I think it was just literature. And he just throws out, so America's a fascist country, right? And then keeps going. Uh, I'm like, eh? Well, you could make the argument, but what? <laughs> but he just, you, know, you, you make the bold statement, you say right, and then you keep going. And what are you going to do? Be like, 
well, actually, um, here's my counter argument. No, you just have to roll with people saying there is, you know, they're slightly eccentric uh, beliefs, and then you move on. You forget that it happened. Well, that's, um, I mean, <laughs> heaven knows in the time of social media and in the age of Donald Trump, we see a lot of people believing that they are individuals saying the same damn thing over and over again. Um, and mm -hmm. the consequences of the, the sort of characteristics and consequences of groupthink of various kinds get, you know, they, 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 they show up pretty starkly. Mm. My favorite internet aphorism of the last few years is surely this will stop Donald Trump. Because yeah, right. <laughs> just keep that thought in your head when you scroll through Twitter. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. If only every tweet on Twitter was an aphorism, then it would be way more, um, if it, you know, if it read quite, you know, as lots of punchy statements and not links and hashtags and quotes. And stuff. I feel like, I feel like part of the issue with Twitter is that people are trying to sound aphoristic. When right. They tweet. One of the reasons I left it. Right. Yeah. I think that was me. That was me on Facebook when I was um, like for age 17 through to like 21 or 22. I thought I was very good at writing powerful or hilarious statements, but and then, but then I guess by the time I hit 22, I was able to look back and see the ones from when I was 17 and be like, oh no, I'm still doing this. Mm -hmm. At least I wasn't calling for murder though, just revolution. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, let's, let's keep going. Let's, let's go away from um, internet rage and go on to drier stuff, uh, publishing and translation. Our English title is Peach Blossom Paradise which is, I think, similar, unless I'm wrong here, similar but not quite the same as the original Chinese title. Um, so what can you tell listeners about the original Chinese title and also your translation of it? And how you, you Absolutely. Know? I can tell you that we went, my editors and I, went back and forth on the title of this novel for literally months mm. because, of course, the, the, the original Chinese four-character phrase, Ren Mian Tao Hua, Literally, people's faces peach blossoms. Mm. A does not translate word for word into English. Right. B comes from a classical Chinese poem, in which, which like many Chinese poems, works using disjunction and partial symbolism. Mm -hmm. So your your first two lines of that particular poem, uh, that is on this year uh, at. I'm sorry, yeah, of course, of course, last year, on this day, within this doorway, so within this gate, a wo the woman's face and the peach blossoms smiled red to each other, reflected red to each other. Um, and it describes a, a, a man, a young man who sort of, you know, met a woman inside, a young lady, or he saw a young lady inside some beautiful villa and she was blushing and gorgeous, and the peach blossoms were blushing and gorgeous, etc. Um, and then he comes back a year later to discover, uh, I don't know where the woman's face went, so she's gone. Um, so the, um, the peach blossoms, just as always, smile at the spring breeze. Um, so it's about the, you know, the passing of time, the ephemerality of, of love and beauty. Right. And there's no way 
that you get that into English without sounding corny as hell. The Chinese title is not corny. And really, when we talk about translation, a lot of what we're talking about is the translation of context, right? The impression created by language. And that has as much to do with the context, the sort of reception context of the original, the source text, as it does with anything else. So there is a significant distinction. We went back and forth with metaphorical titles and, you know, variants of the original. When when this novel was first partially translated and the sort of first push to get this novel translated began, which is probably the better tw- part of 20 years ago now, um, oh, it was, tr- the, uh, the translator simply translated it as beauty. That was the whole thing. Oh, um, and, well, I, I understand why, but, uh, you can uh, your reaction, which was also my reaction, <laughs> sort of describes why that translation we believed was not feasible. Right. So, you know, we went back and forth, and what we decided on this title, Peach Blossom Paradise, blends both a liter a, a how do I want to put this? It blends specific reference to the Chinese title with specific reference to the myth that underlies it, right? Right. So the myth of the peach blossom spring, the utopia that is found by the fisherman who is following peach blossom petals that are coming downstream and he follows the stream to a cave and he goes in the cave and follows it until he comes out the other side and he finds this timeless utopia in which people don't know what government it is and everyone loves everyone else. And so the the title Peach Blossom Paradise refers to both the poem and to this that I just mentioned and the 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 ancient tale of paradise on earth. Perfect. Um yeah, what you mentioned about the English title or English sorry, a literal translation of the title just not not working um <laughs> at all. Um it reminded me of how sometimes on original Chinese editions of Chinese books, um, they'll, for whatever reason, they'll have like the Chinese title and the characters laid out in some interesting way, nice and big. And then they'll have Mm. in English, uh, in like Latin alphabet, some kind of an English title, usually a literal or fairly literal title. And I had a vague memory of seeing Peach Blossom with a human face listed as an English, English title for the book somewhere. That's horrible. Yeah, it's scary. It sounds like horror. <laughs> what novel. an awful cartoon! That's yeah, like, what it says. yeah. Well, yeah, they I, they do that all the time. I mean, hmm. Chinese Chinese uh, publishers are mandated to have uh, English language titles of their books when they mm. report them. Um, this in this is bound up with the all the rules and regulations of the Chinese publishing sphere, and most of the time they come up with these really really unfortunate um, versions like. Like Japiwan's uh, Gulu Twin Gulu Village, it's literally he 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 titled it like the story of China or something. Um, oh, no. there, there's a journalist, there's a journalist named Li Chongpeng who I find amazing and who is now censored all over the place. But he's amazing. He has a he has this incredible book of journalistic nonfiction opinion pieces called Right, everyone everyone else in the world knows, and. His English language title is Smilence. Smilence. Yes. Like trying to turn yeah. smile into a silence. Oh, 
like smiling silence. Oh, you know what? I can see. And you're just like, oh, dude. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. If you were a a Martian coming down from space, you might be like, ah, very excellent and cunning use of language. But yeah. It's about the translation of, it's about knowing how the thing is received. Yes. Right. And reproducing a context of reception. Mm hmm. If, if the title is not weird and strange in Chinese, if the title is not uber corny in Chinese, then it shouldn't be weird and strange in English or uber corny in English. Right. There you go. Yeah. You're reproducing the effect, not the, not necessarily. Right. The meaning. Yeah. Right. Um, the end of that story was as you were talking, I was listening, but I was also Google imaging, Google image searching um, the, the Chinese name. And it seems that the publishers, uh, my memory might have been false. I might have seen it on a web page, not a book cover, because all the uh, Latin writing I'm seeing on the Chinese book covers just have the pinyin, Remian Taohua. So oh, yep. Good yep, choice. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And next question. No, no segue, just the next question. Um, have Great. you met or communicated much with Gofei himself? Mm-hmm. Yes. He and I have an excellent working relationship. Awesome. We started. Um, well, I started, I met Gofei when I uh, audited one of his classes at Tsinghua while I was, stu- I was studying Chinese uh, at, um, at an immersive program at Tsinghua University where he teaches. And I met mm. uh, someone who was one of his students and she took me to listen to one of his classes. Later, when Eric and I were getting, uh, trying to get Paper Republic going as a rights representation agency and like a publishing consulting agency in the, I guess, 2009, 10, 11. Mm-hmm. Um, 2010 was when the Cloak came out and I just fell in love with that. And um, we actually were, uh, so we were involved with the marketing of that title to NYRB. Um, and that was when I started talking to Gofei. Um, and once I was given the go-ahead to translate the invisibility cloak, I, you know, I, I did what I needed to do. I, I uh, wrote down all of my questions and confusions and concerns, and I would email him on a regular basis when I had questions to ask. And he would usually, you know, he'd copy the original email and he'd write in his an- answers underneath my questions. Um, and uh, <laughs> when we had, we did a, an event several a year or two after the publication of the novel might have been right around that time i remember and he was talking about my translation and he said you know i loved working with him because he just he he would he was always asking me questions Mm. he'd write he'd be like what's this mean what's this mean and he actually gofei noted that i actually sort of i caught a couple of inconsistencies right uh, in in the prose itself, and he he compared this to other translations that have been done of his work, where in you know in which the novel the foreign rights for the novel were sold, and the translator translator never contacted him, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you know eighteen months or whatever later this version of his book comes out, and he has no idea what's in it. Right, and he's got no one to chase up, or at least no rapport with well, the yeah. person he can chase up. Exactly. And the rapport is really important. Like having, just having an organic like connection to the translator is important. So he and I did a couple of events for, for Invisibility Cloak back when, you know, people could go out to bars and events. And unfortunately we haven't had the chance to do any kind of publicity for Peach Blossom Paradise. But I have, you know, when I was last in China in 
2019, um, I did a uh, I did a lecture uh, with him and a translation workshop with his students cool. um, over there at the the Fiction Center at Chimhua that they have. Um, and so, you know, he and I like we communicate when we have stuff to talk about. It's great. He's extremely communicative. He's very open. He's a super nice guy, and yeah, it's awesome. Mm. Um. Speaking of maybe not him as a person, but him as a, a writer, I mentioned a sweet spots earlier, and I, I gave an example of like artistic vision hitting us, hit the, a particular artistic vision slotting into a genre and a you know a com- commercial or consumable or enjoyable format, and how I, I really like that stuff. Um, in in terms of this podcast, Gofe is in sort of what I think is a sweet spot, or when I started the podcast, I didn't want to immediately go to the first Chinese writer a list would set you on to because I think if if just gravity is so to speak is pulling you, you'll end up looking at um like dissident writers. And I have you know obviously I've got nothing against them, but I wanted to go a little at least start off going a little bit off the beaten track. But I've kind mm-hmm. of found if you're not at least in translation, if you're not doing someone who's Either a, 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 a dissident like Majian or someone who's a little bit edgy like Murong Shuetsun or uh, mm-hmm. Wang Shuo, there'll be quite a lot of stuff which is kind of lame or generic or repetitive or mm-hmm. isn't or is you know realist and realist isn't a dirty word but it's not my favorite style of thing to read. And yeah. Gofei is pretty singular, at least in all the offers I've covered. He's a guy that I could mm-hmm. read for pleasure. I mean, I mean, I, there's there's books I've read for the podcast which I've enjoyed, but I don't know if enjoying it or appreciating it is quite the same as getting actual, being like, wow, this is great. I'm not mm-hmm. just, I'm appreciating this as a piece of literature, not just as a piece of Chinese literature. That seems cheesy and it doesn't capture entirely what I mean. But yeah, he's, if not my favorite, then definitely one of my favorites that I've done for the podcast. No oh, good. Yeah, there's something particular about him in the context of everyone else I've read that I like a lot, but it's hard to articulate exactly what I mean. Sure, and I would note um, that one of the weird things and great things about Buffet is that he doesn't have a shtick. Mm. So he does not he does not adhere to one type of literature and or you know he doesn't stay in one track and never venture. He began his career as a as an avant-gardist, writing stuff like, you know, remembering Mr. Wuyo or The Lost Boat or Flock of the Brown Birds. Very disjunctive, shattered consciousness, illogical, so frequently irrational prose. He then moved into the 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 trilogy, the Jiangnan trilogy. And then later on, as he continued to write, I mean, we have work like The Invisibility Cloak, we have we have Waiting for the Spring Wind, which is one of his newer books. I believe he's just, he's been trying to come out with a new novel over the past couple of years, uh, which has been difficult because of the publishing environment. But right. his literary eye roves significantly, which is more than we can say for, you know, mo- many writers who sort of, they get a subject or they get a genre and they just, they just do that thing. Yeah, or they have like an experimental period when they're young and then they settle into something mm-hmm. a little bit more plain and then that's them. They're good until until they retire. Exactly. And and moreover, particularly in Chinese case, and this is this is my personal opinion, um, there is a certain group of authors who once they've become famous enough, they lose the ability to edit. And in part 
I think because there are no editors there who feel powerful and competent enough to confident enough to take a blue pencil to their work, they tend to get extremely verbose. Right. Goffe does not do that. One of the incredible one of the incredible things about his work is the more mature it gets, the more succinct and clear it sounds. Mm. Um, his voice has been aging like wine, really. Yeah, um, it's a thing I've noticed um, where when I was a, in, in the music I listened to, where when I was a teenager, I would, I had fairly teenage tastes and there was stuff I would run in, run into either as a teen or in my early 20s and I'd be like, oh, there's something abrasive or um, uh, pretentious or just inaccessible about this stuff. I don't get it. And yeah, compare my 21-year-old self to me now, in the latter end of my 20s, I've went back to one or two of those albums or songs and I'm like, oh yeah, this makes more sense to me now. Um, mm. Maybe, yeah, maybe my nerve endings are just have just been sufficiently dulled by life that <laughs> this is the stuff I like now. I mean, it's, I guess it's the same with food. Kids like sweet stuff because their taste buds, uh, you know, that's it's just the way your taste buds are. Um, you right. can't blame a kid for not enjoying subtle flavors because adults enjoy subtle flavors. And yeah, if, if a, a writer does the same thing where they've preserved the core, but they don't need to be quite so flashy as they get older. Mm -hmm. It's probably mm -hmm. a good sign that they've, they've got something, I guess Tantra, the offer we covered in the last episode, she would have called mm -hmm. it your light, like the part, your little core nugget that you mustn't let the outside world spoil. He's mm. kept that. So it would seem, but he's able to, he's refined it so that he can put it into his work without, um, you know, extremely flashy trappings like a guy who, whose uh, state of his mind seems to be taken out of a Freudian textbook, like in um, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Flock of Brown Birds. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and like what you said. If if he just kept pumping out kind of creepy, strange stories like Flock of Brown Birds, I'd keep I'd keep eating them up. But um, yeah, there's something more impressive about a guy who has kept developing and proved. You know, not just proved he can do it, but has kept growing and refining himself mm -hmm. as, as he proves he can do all these different things. Absolutely. I mean, the best, the, the best artists always feel the need to be doing something different. Um, I think you might have touched on this briefly, but is there a particularly interesting story to how the translation of the Jiangnan trilogy came about? Or have, have we kind of heard the full story? Well, this book has had a fraught history. By which do you mean the English translation? The English translation. I mean, no. I mean, I mean the relationship between Renmian Taohua, the Chinese book, and the English language publishing world. Because right, someone has always been after it. Mm. Fifteen years or so ago, a sample was made by a translator who is a a wonderful translator and a professor, and submitted for a uh, a Penheim translation grant, and it won that grant and for the excerpt. Uh, and then life intervened, and the excerpt went nowhere. Mm. Um, but as was frequently the case with a lot of Chinese novels that were blurbed and shopped around in the early days, a lot of excitement was generated. And that excitement created a concomitant disappointment and confusion when nothing happened to the excerpt. Right. So... In that that context, and, and this is this was a time in contemporary Chinese fiction when 
people were doing some people were doing some unethical things with the rights to Chinese novels. So they people were there were no mainland rights agents at that point. No one was right. formally handling rights distribution in China. It was all you know XYZ's editor or cousin or like daughter-in-law who was right. quote unquote introducing their books you know to everyone they could get their hands on. Right. So no rights management infrastructure practices mm -hmm. nexuses mm -hmm. like the Wild West sort of. Yeah, exactly. And as in the Wild West, people, innocent people get shot, you know, <laughs> right. metaphorically speaking. Um, innocent books get, get shot, and that happened in a number of weird ways. Um, the guy who wrote uh, White Deer Plain, who, uh, Chen Zhongshi, mm, I've heard of that one, accidentally sold away the French rights to that novel in perpetuity. He signed a contract that he could not read because no. a, in French that he could not read because he had people egging him on to do it, and he did not know what was going on. And he signed away the the rights to that French rights to that book uh, in perpetuity to got him out. And this happened. Similar things happened with an, a number of Chinese books. There were some shady characters. There were some deals that went did not go through, um, and that really spooked a lot of Chinese authors. Understandably, yeah. Yeah, of course, understandably. And it was in that context that Renmin Taohua had its first failed interaction with the U.S. publishing world. Meanwhile, a number of people who know Chinese literature can, well... Can I, sorry, can I be annoying and pause you? When was this? When was this exciting slash Wild West period? The 90s. The 90s, right. Sorry, please, go, yeah, please keep going. the 90s. <laughs> um, I was a baby back then. Or I spent some of the 90s not existing. And then I got to right, join right. in the 90s. I, I get <laughs> yeah, I got that impression from you saying, you mentioning Batman Returns as being on when you were a kid. Um, yeah. And I was mid, I was midway through college when Batman Begins came out. Uh, so, yes, that was the 90s. Um, yeah. And, yeah. The, and the early 2000s. And so it, it never, but meanwhile, there were always people reaching after it. Um, and I had always i really wanted to do invisibility cloak and it we did it and it went well but at the same time like right when invisibility cloak got signed i could feel and i started hearing about people starting to make inquiries about peach blossom paradise and i knew my editor at uh new york review books jeffrey yang really likes go face fiction really wanted to do peach blossom paradise and so uh luckily Invisibility Cloak did really well. There was, they communicated, like NYRB communicated with Gofe like very honestly and directly and openly. And uh, I think that allowed, that really made it easier because we proved that we were trustworthy and we were going to do well by him. Right, um, yeah. So that was, it was just, it felt really, really good to finally get, uh, get that book signed. Um, and I was, you know, I had just started my PhD at that point. Um, I had a trip to, I had a trip to Japan looming. Um, I needed to get coursework done. I needed to study for my general exams. So I took a summer, basically. And I had at least six weeks during that summer. The book stayed at about 40%, 30% completion for a while. And then I took a big chunk of a summer. And I translated for six hours a day. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, it was, it was pretty great. And then of course, you know, like this is the real big difference that when, when I got the first draft back with my editorial editors line comments in terms of track changes, there was an average of 65 changes per page, 65 changes per page. Yikes. It was huge. I mean, uh, they have, and, and, and I've been through, I want to say at least four passes with my line editor, with the proofreader, with the copy editor, with the managing editor. I mean, they've been amazing. You should see, like, this is how good books are made. It's not, you know, it's not like an author or a translator creates a perfect thing and it's already perfect and they print it. You know, when, when nobody edits a translation, you can tell immediately. New York Review Books, like, they go over everything multiple times, multiple drafts and email conversations and galleys and just so much work invested in the final product it's really like the work of many hands it occurs to me um there's a lot of potential in either direction for a work in translation it could be kind of like almost machine translated by a translator never touched again or misunderstood by a translator or translated accurately by a translator who isn't a good writer so it, and, mm-hmm. and and then as, as a as a reader the book's going to be even if you enjoy the story, you'll be seeing it through like muddy glass, so to speak, if the prose is, you know, not, if it's not good prose. But then, like you uh-huh. said, there's huge potential for all, for all these steps to, to be there polishing the glass, if I'm, if I'm running with that image. But yeah, um, and I, I know what you mean. I've read some translated books where it's like, yeah, this is slightly, it feels a bit murky. But whatever, there's uh-huh. a good story here somewhere. And then there's other stuff that's like crystal clear. It you get the sense it might even be nicer prose than the Chinese original um, because it's had that much. It's had people, yeah. I guess there's no non cheesy way to say it, but just paying it lots of attention and really putting uh-huh. their their hearts and their focus and blah 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 blah, blah onto it to make absolutely. something more polished than an actual non translated work would be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if you consider that. Literally speaking, all we have are the words on the page, right? Mm. Um, and we make we remake the work in our heads from the signs on the page. Yeah. A good translation, I mean, we, people love to talk about transparency in translation, but that's really a sort of patriarchal, patriarchal is the wrong word. It's a sort of patriarchal. It is a sort of patronizing illusion, right? Which reduces translation to the status of a necessary service, when in fact the translation is the repurposing and the recreation on a new page, right? Mm. But it's not, you know. But the final product of good translation is a sort of polyvocal work because it will never be anything other than a translation and yet you will hear a voice a very clear voice which is not the translator's unadulterated voice it's the voice that the translator is delivering so both presences will be there in a really good translation for sure um i think i mentioned this well it's come up a few times but um i think i devoted a few minutes to talking about this when i was chatting with um uh, Chen Chiu Fan, one of the times I had an offer on the show about his mm-hmm. uh, waist height, or rather Ken Leo's translation of his waist height. And to me, it felt like a very 
I was it Ken Leoian, Ken Leoes, God, uh, however, mm-hmm. however he correctly suffixed that. It felt like it was a translation in his style for quite a lot of different reasons that um, I won't uh, repeat. But um, I remember when I'd heard Ken or read him his writing or heard him talking or somewhere down the line, I've heard him say he has a slightly unconventional opinion that there's something quite cool about translationese. Um, reading a piece of English that is kind of clearly a translation, but that gives it a kind of power because it can mm-hmm. still read very smoothly and it will have qualities that something not translated wouldn't have. And that might particularly apply to um, like something like Chinese to English, two languages mm-hmm. that aren't even on the same language tree unless you're going, mm-hmm. unless the roots run really deep. But um, yeah, um, it could, like I was trying to say earlier, it could be a complete train wreck or it could be um, could produce something really special. And the favorite books I've done on the show are, are yeah, they have a quality yeah. to them. Either they read just like I'd read any other book, or there's something special about them that you wouldn't find in other books. The process of foreignization can be used masterfully as a domestic tool. Mm. And if readers who are not familiar with for instance, Chinese literature, maybe what translation East sounds like in Chinese literature, can always just look to A Clockwork Orange for examples of that, which is interlarded with terms that are mixed from Russian. Right. I've never actually read it, so I, I've only seen the film. Um, mm. I can think of something kind of similar, or at least it involves Russian. Have you read... Um, the English translation of Cat Country, Mao Chongji by Lao Shu. Uh, interesting. I, uh, I never read the English translation. We did it in the original in uh, David Wong's class two years ago. Oh, right. Um, do you remember the bits when they're, um, they're speaking whatever the pig Latin version is of Marxism? Yes. And then the yes. Chinese, I think it's Fusaji is stuck on the end of all the words or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's really good in the English translation. Um, um, I'm trying to think of what is some, what is something they say. We must practice everybody shares um pinksky punksky punksky or something like that. Yeah. And it's like as the reader, well, maybe I'm speak. I can only speak for myself, but if you know the book's been translated from Chinese, then you would logically it, would, it takes no great logical leap to realize you're reading something that began as Chinese parodying parodying Russian mm-hmm. that has been brought into. English, so there's. I don't know how you would draw that web of relationships, but yeah, it's um, it's done very nicely in a kind of self-reflexive way. Absolutely, yeah. He didn't try and make it natural, if that makes sense. Then it works, right? Right, because it it isn't right. It doesn't sound natural in the Chinese, (laughs) right? Yeah, that's the point. Okay, um, we've got nice and technical. Um, here's just just going into me begging for gossip um can you reveal any secrets or make any promise about the rest of this trilogy in translation i cannot well that is but right. all y'all but if all y'all buy the book then <laughs> you can be assured there should be able to be another one yeah yeah and there might just be something somewhere in peach blossom paradise that basically tells you what the next two books are going to be I think mm-hmm. that's fair to say. May or may not be. Yep, it, absolutely. Yeah, it might not be there. I can't. I can't say anything. But I can say it's a great <laughs> book. And um, the cover design, and I guess it's mm. got the it's got the same sort of advantage that um, Flock of Brown Birds did, in that it's got the kind of standard penguin format. This one's got the NYRB format, 
It's really nice. Um, a thing I noticed, and I guess this would not be your domain, but you know how the NYR, NYRB books have the little uh, colored square on the front that has the author's name mm -hmm. and your name mm -hmm. and the title. Um, I remember seeing in early promo pictures, the box was dark blue, a little bit like it is on um, uh, the Invisibility Cloak, but now it's oh, yep. kind of a peach color and it blends really yep. nicely with the uh, cover art. It's just one of the nicest book color schemes I've seen in ages. And when I shared um, when my review copy that I read, thanks NYRB, um, when it arrived, I you know took a picture, put it on uh, Instagram, and like well, I guess it's you can't really call them your listeners if they're your Instagram followers, but the listeners who follow on Instagram, lots of them were like, oh, it looks so nice. And I guess there's it's it's a chime between the title Peach Blossom Paradise and the the color scheme, but there's no mm -hmm. question there. I guess the question is, isn't it nice? Yes, it is beautiful. And I absolutely mm. have to give a shout out to the design team at New York Review Books. I mean, they're just so good. Mm -hmm. um, they, they made up, they designed this super cool image for Invisibility Cloak. They found a number of super cool images for Peach Blossom Paradise. Um, they played around with the colors of that, of that text box a couple of times, actually. It was right. yellow at one point. Oh, no. Um, no, it was, that was fine too. It was sort of right. gold. Oh, okay. Um, but okay. anyway, they 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 did a bunch of different things with it, and they're just you know they're <laughs> they're they're better. Uh, they're always better than than I can even conceptualize. You know, having absolutely no training in design, it's just like they're super good. Mm. Yeah, they've found exactly the right color codes. I, I I don't know if it's a pure black they've used for the um like the title and your name but the way they've got it even the black looks luscious i don't know mm -hmm. i can't put it better mm -hmm. than that but yeah yeah lovely, lovely book design um that was the last publishing and translation question we're now moving into a uh, miscellany um first question in the miscellany section can you suggest for us a chinese um word of the day for this story mm -hmm. yeah i mean if it were only one character um mm. I would, I have to think of, of the word tu. Um, so tu, uh, second tone uh, comes from, for instance, tu fei to, to, to needlessly expend one's words. It, it, it means in vain. Ah, oh, perfect. Um, it's, so it's a shuang ren pang. Um, it comes from, it, it resembles multiple people walking in the same direction. Um, and, mm -hmm. Uh, it, it, there's a, there's a very famous source for this character from, um, the Rhapsody of the Owl by Jia Yi, who is a very, very famous court poet from, uh, from the Han Dynasty, uh, in which he's, he, he's talking about sort of the masses of people. And he says, tu, uh, you know, he says, si xidong, um, meaning the disciples of, what is it? It's like, it's like the, the the disciples of of um, of material pursuits. They run hither and thither, east and west, um, and there's this feeling of needlessness and futility, um, of energy expended in vain. Mm. Uh, that I would choose as, as the sort of character, one of the characters for this book. Yeah, I. Oh, I've, I've just found the character in Google Translate. Yeah, it's, an, it's a nice looking character as well. 
Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, this is that's a, th a thought. The, what you just described is a thought that strikes me occasionally. Either thinking, you know, when you just think, remember something stupid you did, or time you spent and you worry it was wasted, or if I think about um, someone I know and something, whether they were um, doing something foolish or were stri striving their hardest, and you know, life either their own acts or other people's acts or life just blew it all away in the wind um mm -hmm. and i'll be like damn that that sucks and the only way i have to um accept it is just something like i was talking about in your your standard epic chinese modern novel just be like yeah it's because the world is um inhospitable in some ways or its laws aren't particularly convenient for us Sometimes I even, it's not even a real person I'll, I'll think of. I'll just think of some hypothetical situation where someone's done something really cringy and I'm like, oh no, it, that says something about the world because I conceive of it happening and there's enough people in the world. Enough time has passed, it probably has happened. And if you just think of how much stuff is happening in vain, whether you know it or not in the world, it's, mm -hmm. if you fixate on it, it's pretty depressing, but right. it is what it is. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's it makes us think. Reading a story like like Xiaomi's story in Peach Blossom Paradise, we we reflexively think back to sort of survivor. What's the word? Survivor bias, um, in which only successful stories see the light of day. Right. Yeah. And everything else that is unsuccessful dies in darkness. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that survives, it might, it you know what the thing that led it to survive might not it might not be very morally good or it might even even if it is morally nowhere like it doesn't it has no good or bad morals it could be something totally random and mm -hmm. that won't you know we're, we're told um think like it, it applies to evolution i suppose the things that survive and carry on their traits are well suited for survival but just because something survived once doesn't mean that trait's going to be useful long term. I, I, I can't think of any very right. good um, good examples. But yeah, um, everything is very random, and lots of things get buried for the wrong reason right. and are lost forever. Yeah, I, I'm sure I remember when I was reading through my first Chinese history book, thinking, "Damn, not you know." I've said before on the show, the high. I think I had no idea going into picking up the book was how high the high would be sorry, how high the highs would be and how low the lows would be. But aside from that, there's so many um, moments where things could have been fantastic or history could have fast forwarded hundreds of years, but for no one's fault in particular, it all turned to ashes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And if you think about, you know, Chinese history, Chinese history's sense of narrative, particularly of monolithic narrative is so strong that it has a vested interest in eliminating those possibilities of otherness but really they're always there you know mm. in inevitability is written into history by the victors but it doesn't match the sort of omnidirectionality of the present moment yeah on to our next miscellaneous question um it's even more silly than the last one so I've been asking this consistently every episode. I'm not just springing this one on you. Um, mm -hmm. If Peach Blossom Paradise was a drink, what drink would it be? And I should stress, uh, it doesn't have to be alcohol. Soft drinks are, are good. Hot drinks are good. But in anything that's a liquid that won't kill you, uh, what, would, what would you go for? I think if it were a drink, 
And I, frankly, when I first read this question, you sent when you first sent this question to me, the answer appeared immediately in my head. It's dark and stormy. Um, I'm a bit of a, an ignoramus. I've heard of it. I've read it on a menu, but I've forgotten what it is. <laughs> What's a dark and stormy? So um, a dark and stormy can uh, be a number of different things, but mostly it's made with rum and ginger beer with lime juice. Mm. Um, it's usually made with dark rum, so dark Jamaican rum. Um, it is obscure right. and multi-sensory, but it's also but it also leaves you with a bitter aftertaste. Yeah. Um, well argued. Yeah. <laughs> it made me realize it's kind of a hard question. Um, unless you really unless you really take it seriously like you did. So kudos. <laughs> um so last piece of miscellany, it's your self promo slot. Um so you've mentioned, you know, you've you've done this and that. Aside from this book itself, is there anywhere really concrete we can direct listeners? In terms of the work that I do? Yeah, it could either be something you've done you want to promote or just where they can find you online if you wish to make Mm -hmm. such things public. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't have much of a social media presence because uh, it's too tempting for the darker angels of my nature. Um, (laughs) But I I am on Facebook and you can look me up under my name. Um, And I'm also on LinkedIn somewhat somewhat reluctantly Mm. um but in terms of the work i do even though the phd has slowed my literary output somewhat i do have um i have a recent translation of a story by chen san in that we may live all right which is an anthology of experimental literature from two lines press experimental Mm. chinese literature um i have a couple of uh translations of chinese poems out in the solstice review as of a month or two ago um and I will have a couple of poems published in an online magazine called The Curator in a couple of months. So those, I mean, those, those will all be out there and I'll, I'll link to those on both the Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Um, meanwhile, uh, Peach Blossom Paradise is on sale both from NYRB and other booksellers. Um, nice. And if you have a chance, I would really recommend the Invisibility Cloak as well. It is truly a remarkable, shortish novel. You can read it in, in a day or two, makes an excellent gift. There's a whole bunch of used copies out there, so you could get it for fairly cheap. <laughs> right. Um, and it, uh, it's, ext- it's, it's actually, even though it is uh, about some fairly technical stuff, it's surprisingly relatable. Mm. Um, so both of these, both of those books are finally out and available. And I would, I would really recommend them to people because New York view books, I mean, they're, they're just so good at what they do. And it's been such a pleasure to work with them that, that it's, you know, they've really produced some excellent, excellent stuff. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've read the invisibility hook. I got that for my birthday, actually, uh, my last birthday. Um, and what you said about the, the technical stuff, um, listeners don't be scared. It's it's um it's doing a thing I really like in books where the main character isn't just some bookish guy. Um, the main character is a hi-fi repairer and salesman, and also a mm-hmm. what is the term for an, an audiophile? Like he's like a he's an audiophile, high, audiophile, uh, and he's mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and it's hi-fi systems that he's the, an expert in. And I don't know if Guffey himself is an audiophile or if he just did the research. But um, it's a it's a nice snapshot of a 
you know, not the typical bookish, um, sorry, a bookish author writing bookish characters. It's a good example of the opposite of that. A thing I noticed, especially uh, as a kid and a teenager reading books, is the good guys always like to read books and the baddies always hate books. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's a, fan a fantastic book. Otherwise, I'll plug myself here, actually. Um, if any of you listeners have wondered what is there on the show's Patreon, um, if you are interested in what I've got to say about Gofe, and if you're not, that's fine. But if you are, um, I did an episode on the Invisibility Cloak um, on its own. No, no, I just did the one actually. Um, but it was looking at what I'd read of Gofe alongside what I'd read of Tsanshue and doing like a compare and contrast because both are often called avant-garde, but both are, I think, really very different. And it's just my sort of scrambled, uh, unfiltered and unedited thoughts. Um, but if listeners want to find more, there's that. And obviously there's on the main feed, there's the one I did with Eric Abramson about a uh, flock of brown birds. And that's, that's the self promo, my own self promo with my own episode out of the way. Um, speaking of ways, we're about to go our separate ways. Um, but before we mm -hmm. do that, um, as a thing we always do on the show, um, we take a chance to direct the listeners towards some further reading. So we've rattled off quite a lot of other, um, well, uh, Gofei's other work that's available in, in Chinese and in English. Um, what if listeners want to find more like Gofei um, in English or, or in, in Chinese? Where would you mm -hmm. point them? Absolutely. So. If we were looking in terms of Chinese fiction, uh, there are a couple of titles and a couple of authors that I would absolutely recommend. Um, right. I would really recommend the, a book which you may or may not have mentioned called Cherry on a Pomegranate Tree. Never? No, I haven't heard of that, actually. Which is by Liar, one of uh, Gofei's old students, who is by now a very famous uh, novelist in his own right. And he is, he is particularly, his early books, he has two early books um, that have been translated, one cherry on a pomegranate, pomegranate tree, and one uh, called Coloratura, which actually just came out, it was translated by Jeremy Tiang, um, right. that are uh, quite excellent. Um, other than that, in terms of, uh, you mentioned Tanxia, and um, mm. I thought, I thought An Annalise Finnegan Wasmoen's translation of *The Last Lover* was quite good. Right. Um, that's that's another. I mean, that's that's you know Tenshi's style, and you need to be comfortable with that kind of irrationality. Um, but it's very well translated. Right. Yeah. Um, and and of course, you know, when it comes to that kind of clear, painful writing, uh, *Dream of Ding Village*, translated by Cindy Carter. It's from *Ding Zhuang Meng* by Yan Lianke. Mm. about the AIDS village in Henan. Yeah. Um, I presumably you know the story, but uh, uh, Dream of Ding Village is an excellent short novel. It's beautifully done. Mm. I didn't, I'd never seen a physical copy, so I, I didn't know it was short. But um, the, uh, the only Yan Lian Ka book I, I have sitting on my shelf, it's um, Lenin's Kisses. And mm -hmm. interesting sounding story, uh, lovely book design, but it's very big, so I've not started on it yet. Sure, mm. but yeah, there's something to be said for for short novels. Um, I have to before I ask you the next question. I I thought about bringing it up before, but now I have to because you've mentioned both uh, Chen Saan and Jeremy Tiang. Um, mm -hmm. 
I did they he has translated her. Um if listeners want to mm-hmm. know a little bit about Chen San on this podcast feed, uh, I've got an episode on Ocean Hot Pot, which is a play she wrote. Yep. Which appeared in translation at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Yep. Uh, I think 2018, and I was able to catch yep. that one. So that's interesting. Um, but yeah, um, you, you also mentioned uh, That We May Live. That's one, I, th- I think I've mentioned it on the show. Um, it's a tricky one. I was given a PDF copy of it by the Lead Center for Chinese Writing. Um, mm-hmm. I think the intention was for um, contributors to write reviews of some books. Um, mm-hmm. It went nowhere. I think the pandemic just washed it away in... Um, yeah. So, so I, I was never. I sent in one one review for um, those books I was given. I don't know if anything came of it. But anyway, this this PDF is sitting on my hard drive. But I don't want to read it because the book's uh, design is absolutely gorgeous. I know I keep bringing up nice book design, but this one um, yeah. they've really gone for ty- typographically rather than just cover design. It looks fab. So I think I'm going mm-hmm. to wait till I have a copy, a physical copy, to read it. But just based on the visuals alone, I, would, I haven't read the one that one, but I'd recommend it. And I'd be interest, Absolutely. interested to read more Chen San, having not actually read anything by her, only having seen a play. Well, she's great. I'm in the middle of I'm in the middle of translating another one of her stories for the same publisher. Um, her collection of short stories, um, A Counterfeit Life, uh, is is really a lot of fun. I've translated. I've actually published translations of two of those stories i did a i published another one of the entries in the southern review last year um and like i said i'm i'm on story number three right now uh she's wonderful i love her fiction she's such an interesting uh compassionate Mm. sensitive like multivalent and incredibly powerful uh writer and and playwright um i'm a huge fan of chen Cool. Glad to hear that. I'm also going to, I'm going to keep plugging myself here because um, things just keep popping up. It seems silly not to, to, to grab them when they do. Um, Jeremy Tiang's name's popped up a few times. The next episode mm-hmm. of the show is going to be on his translation of Yanga's Strange Beasts of China. That came out pretty recently. Cool. I got to read it first. Uh, I think it's still in the yeah. post. <laughs> but um, yeah, listeners, um, prick up your ears. Watch out for that one. That should be Excellent. That should be good. And oh yeah, but the, maybe the most exciting thing I mentioned earlier, I've not had authors on the show. I think it's only been twice. I think it's just been Chen Chofan and Xia Jia, but Yanga and Jeremy are gonna be on that episode. It's gonna be the first fun. me versus two other <laughs> me taking on two people <laughs> at the same time and presumably getting uh-huh. the shit kicked out of me. So that should be fun. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, and last question, um, self-indulgence aside, what are you reading just now? If you're not mm. um, you're not really busy, if you've got time to read. Oh no, I I am always reading, um, and I'm taking I'm going through multiple books at the same time. Um, I in my in my uh, mornings I've been reading uh, the poetry of Dean Young. Um, so I've been I've been a, a practicing poet for a long time now, but more intensely over the past year i've really been able to up my commitment um and i've read a whole bunch of collections but i'm reading dean young's uh, 1995 prize winning collection strike anywhere um which is pretty good um and i won't get into it but it's worth reading and i can see both why people love dean young and also why they got sick of him really quickly <laughs> mm. um because he sort of began and ended a mini genre of poetry all on his own 
Um, at the same time, I'm reading uh, Ken Casey's One Flew Over Cougar's Nest, which I'm em- embarrassed to say I never finished. Right. Um, I've got some uh, some ancient Chinese literature that I've queued up. I'm reading uh, the poetry of a, a guy named Yuan Zhongdao, who is uh, a, a big who's a big poet of Ming Dynasty. Um, and then uh, let's see, what else do we have in this pile? I have this huge pile of books sitting next to me. Oh, um, and also the uh, <laughs> the printed version of the Pingshu Sangguo Yanyi. So it's the Pingshu performance version of the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Um, and the way that I'm doing it is I'm actually, each chapter has a QR code that links to the live performance on Simalaya. Um, and I'm actually, because this is part of my field work, I'm actually listening to the podcast, to the performance while I'm reading the text. Cool. I think that's the first time a guest has talked about being a Shimalaya user. Um, and that's, that's oh, one I know about. I, I gave, um, I get, yeah, listeners, you wouldn't know this, but I give every guest a disclaimer on everything I'm going to do with the show. And one thing I tell them is, yeah, I upload to this thing called Shimalaya. Um, and I realize now I didn't need to baby talk you through what it was, but yeah, that's, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shimalaya is very useful. I've mm. um, pulled a bunch of scholarly evidence off of there because oh. they have so many performances. Cool. That's up. interesting. Um, now there was something you mentioned. Oh yes, I was going to mention what I'm reading. I think because it's it's it ties into um, having mentioned being addicted to that game, The Witcher. Um, mm-hmm. So I play that when I've run out of um, important life things to do. Um, late in the evening, I sit down and play it. And being an RPG, you fall into it for hours, and then it's time to go to bed. And I see my copy of Beijing Coma sitting on mm. his doorstopper book. You mentioned doorstopper <laughs> books a few times. Sitting there looking at me being like, why aren't you reading me? I'm a very important mm-hmm. modern Chinese literature. And it's like, oh no, it's already mm. it's already half eleven. I can't do it. But that's that that's an episode that should be happening at some point next year. But yeah, um I've really this end segment has mostly been me doing self-promotion. So thank you very much for um being patient with me, Kanan. Is there anything else um we've missed? throughout this discussion or any final notes you want to throw out there not really we've had a great uh we've had a great couple hours talking to each other and um we've covered a whole lot of ground mm. well, i was um i a few listeners have told me um they don't they don't love the three hour episodes i think two hours mm-hmm. is again bringing up sweet spots i think two hours is a good yeah. sort of sweet spot um it's not yeah. so short that it's pointless and it's not going into insane exhaustion territory insane exhaustion territory yeah okay well um i, I guess i say i'll say thank you too um it, it was a great chat i don't know how much you prepared it felt like you are you're a great podcast guest because you were banging out the hundred dollar words but you were using them correctly which doubles their value <laughs> it was it was quite it was quite pleasing listening to you articulating uh what's going on between the lines in the book and stuff so yeah i'm sure the listeners will dig that too excellent well thank you yeah, and uh, should should anything else ever come out, maybe if it's just another book in this series, you'd be welcome back on the show. Again, I say that to to every guest, but um, I, I mean it. If if you do, if you'd like to come back on, consider yourself welcome. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Angus. Yeah, thank you too. And that's us reaching the end of the show. So another banger and really quite a special novel. I mean, me and Kane already said this already, but it's really immersive and it's a really interesting point in Chinese history. And the characters Gofei's created are some pretty interesting virtual uh, simulated people. So yeah, um, do check the book out. It's available to buy from the New York Review of Books. Um, you can get it off Amazon. 
But, you know, it's always better not to get it off Amazon, get it from a, a real bookseller and not Bezos Corp, please. The revolution demands it of you. Speaking of the revolution, um, I'm going to reverse things a little bit and talk about the best way you can help this show, and that's by spreading the word. Forward the revolution, tell your local sect leader uh, as he passes you the golden cicada, which indicates that he is friend and not foe, but also anyone who might be interested in the show, tell them too. And now I'm going to do the actual um, plugs. Yeah, we'll do things actually in re real reverse. I'll do the uh, ways you can give me money now, and then we'll do the, the purely like following based stuff. So if you want to support the show tangibly, which is what I mean by give me money, um, and help me cover hosting fees and, and whatnot, you can do, there's two ways you can do that that will let you access bonus content. Uh, there's the Patreon and there's the Podbean pre Podbean premium feed. They both give you access to all the bonus shows I make about untranslated books about China, be they fiction or non-fiction, or movies, or random thoughts, or sort of my um, preliminary musings before covering a book on the main show. So like I did that for Peach Blossom Paradise and I've done that for other books and stuff. So stuff like that. Yes, so Patreon you can get it all for a dollar a month at least or more. The Podbean premium feed, uh, you do have to sign up for Podbean and their payment system, which might be a minor hurdle for you, but with 10 USD, you get access to all those bonus shows forever and it's a one-off payment. Um, if you go to the podcast homepage, trichific.podbean.com, so trchfic.podbean.com, uh, what we've got there for you is lots of handy ways to browse the episodes full show notes and all the episode art, but there is, the reason I'm bringing this up is there's a support page which lists handy links for all these different methods for supporting the show. So that's that. Okay, let's put money aside and go on to the, the social media and maybe most importantly ways you can get in touch and give me some feedback on the show. If anything I got wrong, then do let me know. If there's stuff I got right or, you know, more importantly, if, you, if there are parts of the show that you really enjoyed, uh, do let me know. Uh, as I said at the start of the show as well, if you've got a Trishufuk relevant news that you'd like me to cover on the show and boost and amplify, well, that's what this show is for. So please do let me know and get in touch. So yeah, um, forward the revolution, and until next time, Saijian. <laughs>